strange attraction, mass psychology, synchronicities, and occulted realities. Welcome to the Friday Farcast with Robert Phoenix. Oh, wait, actually, no, wait. Uh, I'll, t- I'll, put, I'll text it to you in the chat here. Don't worry about it. Okay, cool. Yeah, because it, it just sent me to your... Uh... Oh, wait, here we go. There it is. Awesome. Uh-oh. Wait, this is all going live, so... <laughs> We're all live now. There we go. This this is sort of like the... Uh, what, what do they call it? The, the, uh, the stuff that doesn't make the editing room? The, this is the DVD extras. DVD extras, right. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Christopher Knowles, the secret son, and uh, he's here today joining us. And it's a really a, a great pleasure and opportunity to hang out with you and travel into the vast cosmos, which is right behind your head back there. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to the show. This is uh, the uh, Friday Forecast. I'm Robert Phoenix. Uh, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. Doing real good. 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 So one of the things I like to do is I like to start the interview off by asking really basic questions like, who are you? Where did you come from? And how did you get here? Right? So why don't we start there? And, uh, and I know you've got a, we're going to get into your um, history as an author, you've got some books, and mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to put them up on the screen so people can see them. So we'll cover all that stuff as well. But let's, let's go personal here for a second. And, uh, Let's dive into your into your past. Okay. What do you yeah. want to know? <laughs> All right. So who are you? How did you get here? Like, how did Christopher Knowles become Christopher Knowles? I think that's a really good place to start. Uh, well, uh, born and bred in Boston, Massachusetts, specifically Braintree, Massachusetts. Um, grew up in a family of professional musicians. My mother was a professional musician, spent a lot of time in nightclubs and uh, concert halls and things like that. Got exposed to a lot of unsavory elements from a very early age. Um, You know, grew up in a place and time that was extremely strange and weird and uh, a town that is kind of like a... um, like a real life Twin Peaks or a real life Lumberton, or at least was, uh, I'm sure like gentrification has kind of knocked that out, but it was very much a town that was uh, run by all the various organized crime interests in the area. Uh, Whitey Bulger, for instance, uh, Winter Hill Gang, uh, the Archdiocese of Boston. Uh- <laughs> they were running everything. I mean, I've seen these interviews on Vlad TV. And he has these gangsters that like he likes gangsters. And so he has people on there that talk about the connection between that area of Massachusetts and New York. And they were like, they were running stuff, everything, you know, it was numbers, girls, nightclubs, bars, garbage trucks. They were running everything. And then the New York guys got interested and said, there's something going on over here. We want, we want in on this. And I, I don't mm. think people understand just how pervasive the mob was in in the Massachusetts area. No, I mean, basically the state was run by the Bulger brothers, you know, uh, William Bulger was the speaker of the house of, you know, and his brother ran, you know, basically the underground economy. So you had the government and the underground economy run by these two brothers. 
from South Boston. Um, Whitey Bulger was a notorious MK Ultra graduate, had was experimented on at Alcatraz, sort of like a star pupil for the program. And it just goes to show you, uh, <laughs> you know, how deep the rot goes. But um, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book called The Endless American Midnight, which is a collection of writings with new writings. But a lot of it I talk about, you know, where I grew up. And, you know, I don't just give you anecdotes, you know, you supply the, the, the clippings, the, the evidence to show just how completely screwed up this town was. Whoa. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I was like, where did he go? Where did he go? Uh, yeah, so um, the Archdiocese of Boston is, is located. They had to sell their big fancy cathedral to pay for all the settlements. Um, but the, um, the guy who was basically bankrolling the diocese uh, was a guy named Flatley who owned most of Braintree. Um, and, and deeded land to the, to the archdiocese when they were when they were bankrupted by all the settlements. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I go into this. It was a very strange time, and um, so so let me a ask lot of a lot of organized crime. I mean, even to this day, I mean, you know, I had, when I had written in the book up until the year 2016, there was this massive uh, scandal, this evidence locker scandal at the Braintree Police Department that was like straight out of Serpico. And then, you know, the, uh, the woman who was allegedly running it, who was in my homeroom in high school, was suicided, basically. And, uh, yeah, and it's just a lot of human trafficking because there are a lot of hotels. It's sort of like a hub between Braintree and, I mean, between Boston and, and southern New England, you know, 95 down in New York. So there's a lot of traffic going in and out, and there's a lot of prostitution. The hotels always has been. Right. So, you know, I just sort of grew up in this milieu of, like, Nothing is what it seems. Uh, nobody who is they appear to be. You know, one of the things I write about is that there was like an open pedophile pimp working out of my uh, junior high school, middle school. Um, he was at it for 22 years before they finally arrested him. They arrested was him. he was he involved in sports? Was he a coach? He was a um, well, he was a Boy Scout troop leader, and he was a foster parent and. Uh, uh, I think a church group leader. Um, I mean, up and down the line, everybody knew about it. Everybody By the was, way, those are the, those are the real Satanists, not the ones that play dress up. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, everybody knew about this in school and like the first day of school, when, when I went to that school, my, you know, my sister said, stay away from this guy. And uh, he, it was just, it was so blatant and out in the open and that it was clear that he was being protected and it was clear that, I mean, he had a lot of money, you know, he had like all these kids that, you know, he was fostering, quote unquote, and they always had like the best mini bikes and the best sneakers. And, you know, he, he just really hooked them up with all the best stuff. And he was arrested when he was finally arrested. He was arrested on a 52 foot yacht off the coast of Florida. So, I mean, it just goes to show you that, you know, I mean, this is this is the milieu I grew up in. Just a lot of violence. How old were you when you became aware of, of this kind of unsettling nature and this this uh, false reality? Uh, pretty young. Pretty young. Um, and what did you do? What did you do with it? I mean, did you did you talk to your parents? I mean, where did you go with this, uh, this understanding? 
Right, I know. I, you know, I went, I went to the, I went into the hardcore clubs of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, I mean, I was uh, kind of a mainstay on the the first wave hardcore scene uh, in Boston. You know, and I went to school with all those guys. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the groups that people still talk about from that scene. I went to, you know, I was in like middle school with, you know, and uh, so I hung around that scene and. It, and I saw a lot of things there too, you know, um, you know, it just made me realize that the entire kind of entertainment industry is completely compromised from top to bottom, particularly the music industry. It's something I really understood from a very early age because one of the, uh, one of the clubs my mother had a residency at was owned by the, I don't think it was the Winter Hill gang, but it was one of the Irish gangs um, out of Southie. And of course, you know, it was burnt down in an arson fire because <laughs> why wouldn't it be? Um, so, you know, it was just very, um, very much a part of my, of my history. And, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that I kind of go into and allude to, but um, yeah, it was messed up. It was really messed up. So from the beginning, you know, from the, my earliest age, I just had this understanding that, you know, the official story cannot be trusted. Right. That, that it's usually a lie. Yeah. Right. So were you, uh, I'm assuming, but it's not always good to assume that that's a heavy Catholic area. Were you raised Catholic? No, I was, uh, well, see, that's the other interesting thing too, is that uh, it was a very heavy Catholic area, but I was uh, a Methodist. Interesting. Uh, my family was Methodist. and uh, So you're an outsider even in that world, right? Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So it gave me an interesting vantage point. Um, you know, we were Methodists. We were very serious Methodists. Um, you know, church was like dawn to dust kind of deal. Uh, it wasn't just like, you know, I'd go to mass with my Catholic friends and it'd be like 20 minutes in and out, you know, and right. then all the men would go to the bars and all the women would go to the, to the Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> so um, it was, it was a different experience. So it was like very immersive uh, religious experience for me. And um you know, I was also sick a lot and I spent a lot of time in the hospitals um, in the area. Yeah, so I just had a very, um, almost like, tempted to say like ghost-like kind of <laughs> relationship to my environment. You know, I was always a sort of on the margins uh, for right. one reason or another. Um, but uh, <clears throat> I had a lot of fun in high school. <laughs> so I'm not complaining. Right, uh, right, I, yeah. Uh, you know, it's usually yeah. what high school winds up being for some people. For other people, it seems and more 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 so now. It seems to be really more alienating than ever, more disaffecting than ever. That whole experience. But back in the day, well, that's yeah, that's social media. Um, yeah, you know, I I, I don't know if you, how familiar you are with my work, but I'd written a series called Lucifer's Technologies that talked a lot about the the ritualism behind the um, creation of the. Uh, transistor and the microchips and everything and, and how all these creations and inventions were always um, presaged or accompanied by high ritualism. Right. Um, right. And, and I think that that has been baked in and, and we see that. I mean, we see, you know, I, I, what I say all the time and people think I'm just kind of kidding is like, you know, MK ultra is like everywhere now. It's, it's not, some historical program that was shut down in the seventies, whatever. I mean, it's like, I don't know what they're calling it. There's probably a bunch of different names, but the, the, right. the precepts, the, the ideas behind all these programs, artichoke, bluebird, 
Naomi uh, often. You know, I mean, all these programs, um, if you understand that the thinking behind them and that the specific methodologies, you understand that this stuff is everywhere now. This, that, that was not about creating Manchurian candidates. It was about mass scale social Mass scale social change. Yeah, absolutely. So they've, they've, uh, they've streamlined it. They've figured out they are indeed it. They streamlined it. Now they have a million channels to broadcast Mm. the the programming through. So Mm. when you, when you got into the transistor age, I'm assuming that you're connecting that to the birth of rock and roll in the late fifties and the early sixties, because those two things seem to be really like kludge together like you know and you have the the rise of the transistor radio and miniaturization and people walking around with these things mm. up to their ears right the you, you know the little black box yeah so, i mean that was a little later what i started with was the period after the war and and in some cases world war ii war. you're, you're yeah. referring to right yeah okay. um yeah. the trinity mm-hmm. tests yeah some and then a number of like quote-unquote scientific experiments that are heavily laden with ritualism. So, you know, having a very serious religious background, um, I, I understand ritual. I understand the thinking behind it. And, you know, you can just see it. So we had the Trinity tests, obviously. And then we also had uh, Operation Crossroads. I don't know how many people are familiar with that, but those were the tests in the South Pacific, the uh, H-bomb tests. Now, I mean, just think about like the, the terminology there, Operation Crossroads, you know, Traditionally, what were crossroads? That's where Robert Johnson went. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, where you meet the demons and start making deals. And then there was also Project Diana, which coincided with the Babylon working. And I, I think that Hubbard and Parsons chose that period of time um, intentionally mm-hmm. because Hubbard had this huge obsession with Diana, right? Dianetics, right? Right. Um, and then there was the Shelter Island Conference. Um, and then there's all this, you know, um, term, uh, symbolism connected to Wells, Ra's well, right? Um, Rose well. That or- connects- Orson Wells, H.G. Wells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the symbolism is obsessive. And when you start to look at the specific details, and trace some of the stories behind it, you start to realize that, you know, these technologies and and maybe not what they appear to be, maybe there's something else going on, there's some other influence. Uh, You know, I have a very supernaturalistic worldview. So I see this as, uh, you know, a function of, of the supernatural and the spirit realm contact. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of people who, who aren't involved in creative fields don't understand how, you know, for lack of a better term, supernatural creativity can be. I mean, you're, you're tapping into, whether it's tapping into parts of your brain, your unconscious or something else out there. Um, it's, you know, it's a process that to me seems much more a uh, spirit-based than a reductive kind of just yeah yeah if anybody's ever if anybody's ever spent any serious time you know playing around creating you're you'll usually tap into a moment where it's like a window opens this Mm. window opens and then something else 
seems to be participating with you in that moment. Right. Mm, that's it, true. Yeah. 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 And then you think about, well, what just happened? It was more than the sum of my usual parts. And how did I get here? And more importantly, how can I do it again? Yes. Right. That's yeah. the, that's what comes up. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I used to play guitar with, in bands and stuff and uh, I would just have a out of, out of body experiences while playing and just, you know, I, you know, record these things and just be like, did I play that? Like, you know, you have these experiences where you're just, you're looking at your hands, do these things that you don't necessarily recognize. Right. You know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't play it that way. You know what I mean? It's like, what, right, what's going right, on here? Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's, um, you know, the ancients call that like the muses. I mean, there was always the idea of, of some other force working through you when you're inspired and this is um you know this is universal across any number of religious traditions from you know the esoteric to the esoteric right in terms and, of that some people can handle it, be like the holy spirit right I mean, that well be, exactly yeah, yeah exactly you know the paraclete the um you know speaking in tongues and everything like that pentecost right. um you know that's something that you know we learned about in church and you know and it's something that i don't think is is unique to the christian tradition um and scientists try to get all reductionist about it but uh i don't think that really flies i mean you can you can explain what is happening but you can't explain why it is happening or how it is happening yeah essentially. yeah essentially in my estimation yeah it kind of gets into that uh that william james sort of classification of the uh, mystical experience, right? There's the ineffable, which is a, an important part of describing the mystical experience. It's ineffable. You can't really reduce it for, for better or worse. Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, I, I sort of see myself as a mystic, synchromystic, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm really at the point right now where it's just like, I don't try to label experience. I don't try to explain it i don't try to impose some sort of quasi pseudoscientific uh rationale on it you know i don't try to give it like these anthropomorphic identities you know say like like what a pagan might do you know um you know it's just about pure experience for me uh, right. and i and i find that very liberating because you disattach yourself from you know, from strictures that precede your birth and are, you know, laden with all this cultural baggage and so on. And to me, it's just about pure experience now. I, I don't try to name things or codify them or explain them. It's just like, uh, you know, it's kind of like having sex, you know, like when you're having sex, you want to surrender yourself to the experience. You know, you don't want to try to you know impose map, a narrative map, map on. it out and break yeah. it down yeah, yeah yeah so uh yeah it's um i think at that point in time you know it took me a long time to get to but you know at that point in time i think you you experience true joy you know you experience true joy when you're not trying to impose any sort of narrative 
Right. Meaning or say. meaning or order. Yeah. In a particular so. way. So how long so how long did it take you to get there? Oh <laughs> uh let's see how right now I'm fifty-six. Yeah. Uh uh I don't know, 55 years. <laughs> so this is a uh, recent development in your life. No, well, see, I had, um, I had a kind of a medical crisis for a number of years. Um, well, my, my whole life has kind of been like a medical crisis. <laughs> but, uh, you know, things started getting like kind of serious. Uh, I guess around the time, around the time I turned 40 or so, uh, you know, I have a, a pain condition that was, I, I used to treat naturally, you know, like I did martial arts and weights and stuff and uh, with diet, you know, eliminating certain things from my diet and everything. But then it's just got really, really bad, really out of control. And uh, so I just ended up on the, uh, the pharmaceutical train to hell. And uh, it make, that train makes a lot of stops yeah yeah so so the organic the organic method works but you really have to work it right you have to be assiduous you have to take any number of supplements you can't really you know fall off the wagon then you go the modern route and it's like easy right it's quick it's this it's this it's this Mm. you don't really have to check in and do all that heavy lifting in order to keep yourself well but then there's a price to pay for that oh it's a terrible price to pay for that yeah. Um, it, you know, so that lasted, you know, that, that whole experience lasted, you know, almost 15 years, I guess you would say a little less, maybe 13 years, but, um, you know, it all came to a crashing halt and I had to withdraw from a number of different pharmaceuticals that are notorious for, being <laughs> difficult to withdraw from and uh you know it was a real really tough time in my life but you know i came out of the other end and so you had a, uh, you had a jordan peterson moment is that is that what happened there i don't know about a jordan peterson moment but uh, he was ad- he was addicted to benzos and he had to get off of them yeah i i um if i told you if i just if I read off the list of the, the, the medications and the dosages, this friggin' quack had me on. See, the problem was that, you know, the pain just started getting worse and worse. And I didn't realize that it was the medications that was making the pain right. worse. Right. Yeah. So, so here, here's the uh, $64,000 question. Do you feel like you were targeted during that time through that specific quack by any chance? Like individually targeted? Yeah, like like let's pump this guy up to the point where, you know, he's a lifelong customer and he's a uh, kind of a vegetal remain of his former self. I, I don't think um, I don't see myself as being targeted individually. I think you know it was systemic. Uh, it was systemic. It was it was a widespread program that started in the late nineties and was really just about getting people on the hook with these these very toxic uh medications and so on so um anyway i mean that really you know from a very early age i always had like you know a very mystical consciousness i just you know i'd go out and experience nature you know by myself you know through every climatic you know, condition, you know, snow, rain, heat, you know, night, 
day. Uh, and, and I really just, I always just felt like super connected to it. And it's something that, you know, you can't explain because it's almost like your brain is just firing on so many cylinders and there's so many associations and, you know, it's just like, but it's like that experience of being in nature that was, you know, kind of inborn with me, but the drugs just totally wiped it out. Yeah. You know, it just, they, they totally deadened me and, uh, you know, and the pain and everything. So, um, getting, getting away from that was kind of like, you know, finding myself on the other side. It's like, to me, like every day of my life is gravy now. Right. Right. Cause uh, you, you, you face something very intense and then you were able to transform that experience to where you Yeah. Were yeah. I, I, yeah, I do. But it's also like, you know, my kids are all grown now and uh, you know, I sort of had a career that, that ran like a natural lifespan. And um, I just, I just really feel right now that like, this is just extra innings. You know, understand what I'm saying? Like, I, I yeah. feel like, you know, the, my life as, as, as it's understood, as it used to be understood, right. As it used to be understood as the American dream or whatever, or just like the, you know, you, you get married, you have kids, you have a career, you buy a house, I mean, all that kind of stuff. I did all that kind of stuff. And right. uh, so now, like I said, it's like, you know, this is just the DVD extras of my life now, and I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> That's great. Let me throw another one of your books up here. Uh, this is where I, this is where I checked into you. All right. Was, was this, was that you were, I think you had just finished this book and I was on Facebook at that time. And I think you were on Facebook too. And, and I think I connected in with you, not personally, but your work through this book. Mm-hmm. And, um, it triggered a lot of really interesting things for me because I was a big comic book guy growing up. And, mm-hmm. and then I, I sort of dropped it when I was around maybe 15 years old or even before that. The, the normal, that's what normal people used to do. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, I'm, I'm done. Saturday morning cartoons, I'm done. I'm moving on, right? So uh, let's talk a little bit about this, about this book and this idea of myths and archetypes and heroes and uh, you're, and I, I, and I believe you were an illustrator too. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I, um, I freelanced from Marvel for about 25 years. So who, who are your favorite illustrators from Marvel? Oh, from Marvel specifically. Yeah. From Marvel uh, specifically. Well, you know, Jack Kirby, Jack Kirby's the man, right? Yeah. Jack Kirby, John Byrne, um, you know, the stuff that Miller did for Marvel, uh, Gil Kane, Gene Colin, John Buscema, I mean, all the, all the, you know, that was the golden age of of these illustrators, right? Yeah, it really was. Um, You know, I was a little, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. So it's like the, the, the whole silver age was kind of over by the time I learned how to read. I did learn how to read very early. I mean, I learned how to read when I was three um, using a comic book, by the way, but um, you know, the, the Bronze Age, I guess, was sort of the hangover, but there was still a lot of great stuff going on. And, uh, you know, it was just really exciting. And, you know, it was really exciting up until, for me, up until the mid-80s. And, you know, you, you signed off when you turned 
15, uh, I kind of signed off when I turned 20 because after um, Watchmen and Dark Knight, I was just like, well, what, what else needs to be said? You know, what else needs to be said? Um, I pretty much just dipped out of superhero comics at that point in time. I read, I still was reading a lot of comics, but they were, you know, more alternative kind of things. And, uh, but I started working, well, I started freelancing for Marvel when they were toy biz and I did a lot of uh, toy packaging and it's like 95, I guess. So I guess I was 28, 29. Um, you know, and then, you know, it just kind of went from there. And then, you know, we had the whole superhero explosion. And, you know, what our guards were spandex really did is that it just kind of was like, it wasn't prophecy. It was just like telling people, like, this is what's, you know, this is what's coming for us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. this, is, this, is, this is what the, the culture is going to be. You know, and this, you know, I wrote the book in 2006. So it was before uh, the Iron Man movie and the Dark Knight, which really kicked off changed everything yeah change you know because before that we had the x-men movies and we had the spider-man movies and stuff and i think there was one of the at least one of the fantastic four movies i think um but it really wasn't anywhere on the level that it came to be and and i have to tell you i mean i think that um i don't think it did the culture any favors i, I think the immersion into geek culture was was a net negative for culture and and adulthood and humanity well, then you, I, yeah you throw in the rise of the cell phone too right around the same time mm, right yeah, like like yeah. the iphone comes out strong in what uh, 2007 right the iphone one and it does things that other phones just can't do at that time and it, mm. it creates this access and this ubiquity to information that wasn't there before you know if you were going to get on the internet you had to have a computer. You had to have a little bit of savvy to play around and, you know, find things. And not everybody had computers. Now, once you had the cell phone, it was it was like it was like a plague at that point. So, mm. so you have the rise of the cell phone right around the same time. These comics are starting to become popularized, which I think accelerates the process you're talking about. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention all that because really, I had done a series in uh, 1983. And I called 1983 the year that broke reality. And the reason being is that that's, you know, the introduction of TCP IP protocols, which is basically the internet, right? You know, yeah. this, it, yeah. this is where you go from like the real internet. Right. Uh, when, before we had like BBs and stuff and dial in. Um, but, you know, the first cell phone was introduced in 1983, uh, the Macintosh computer, which yeah. started the whole user-friendly movement right. that yep. you know, yep. or Oracle is incorporated around that time too. Yeah, right. well, Microsoft Word came yep. out that year. So it's like all these major earth-shaking kind of innovations. Innovations happened that just completely had, I mean, I would argue, you know, a distorting effect on the, the culture. The Tandy, know. the Tandy 2000, I think, comes out right around that same time too. The the uh, Radio Shack computer. If I'm not mistaken, I thought that was earlier. Is, Wasn't that like '81? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. It, it, it just. But it's in that time period. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just all these kind of things that sort of converge. But also, I mean, a lot of people don't remember that we had like three kind of serious Cold War scares 
in some ways as bad as the Cuban Missile Crisis, but so, just have been kind of forgotten. You know, uh, the Soviet uh, false alarm incident, I think that was in the spring, uh, the, sh the shooting down of KAL uh, 007 with Larry McDonald. Oh, yeah, with right. Larry McDonald. Larry McDonald. That's, that's huge. Yeah, September 1st. And then, and then, and then, uh, who is it? Uh, Scoop Jackson dies the next day. Oh, does he? He dies yeah. the next day when he's <clears throat> he's talking about it, right? And he has a heart attack, giving this live presser, and then he dies. That happens the absolute next day. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> um, and then uh, Abel Archer in November. I threw up 1983 here, um, right there, January 1, the migration of the ARPANET to TCP slash IP is officially completed the first day of the year, right? Mm -hmm. There it is. It's exactly, That's right. It's exactly That's what you're exactly talking what about. what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah. And uh, if we wanted to scroll through this year, right, we have IBM releases the IBM PCXT, got a 3D printer, right? I mean, like, things are happening here. Um Let's see, you've got an embassy bombing in Beirut, killing 63 people. So there, was two, thing, there was two bombings in Beirut. There was the Marine Barracks bombing, too. Um, uh, nuclear shutdowns, uh, the Challenger, which uh, blew up in 86. Right. Uh, the, what, I, I think the uh, HIV was identified. Yeah, so you have Gallo and Montagnier. Uh, whatever that's about, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that comes online in '83. And another nuclear power scare in June, June 30th. Um, right there in Argentina. Yeah. Oh, and you know, I, I should have made note of this. A Nintendo's family computer goes on sale in Japan. So you know, this is really a lot of things are happening that would have a huge impact. On our lives today yeah. here's the uh, soviet nuclear false alarm right where they were really close to, to pressing the button right mm, mm -hmm. september 26th mm, and the same day you had the uh the soyuz explosion right fire yeah 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 absolutely bang right there oh no it was an explosion that's right so yeah and then uh september 1st so september is like Huge, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Their flight 007. Yeah, yeah. Wow, I was a wow. senior in high school that year, so. So your head must have been spinning, right? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it sure was. Um, Here we go. Anything else interesting that year? Let's no, see. a lot of interesting things that year, but, you know. So this is the year that broke reality, 1983. Yeah, I, I think, I think. In retrospect, I think it really needs to be seen in that regard. Um, you know, we've had a lot of major years where a lot of major things happen. A lot of major innovations were introduced into the market. But I see this year as kind of determining everything that follows. And I always found it, you know, really interesting that the first Stranger Things takes place uh, it starts, the story starts on November 6th, the day before Abel Archer. Um, so I, I think that there's a, um, 
you know, really powerful sort of inference in there. I don't know how much of that is conscious on their part, but I, you know, I still think that first Stranger Things is one of the greatest things ever ever made by anybody. I think it's amazing. I think the first series a season is amazing. Yeah, and and I'll tell you something. You know, for for younger people, if you really want to get a taste of what that year was like, you, I, I I am just shocked. I am just shocked. You know, there are scenes in that that I just feel like we're just lifted straight from my experience and i know a lot of other people my age felt the same way so yeah uh if you know if you're a younger person and want to really get a sense of the kind of forces that were at work um you know obviously i maybe not the you know the monsters running around to high school or whatever but uh you know if you really want to get a sense of what that year felt like i it's that is just absolutely uncanny to me it, it can you know my wife and i just did a rewatch before the, the fourth season started and it's just, it's amazing how much different it is from the other seasons and just how perfect it is. To me, it's just absolutely perfect. It, it's and it nails everything from the, you know, the, the, uh, it's a period piece. Everything is perfect. Um, the kids are, you know, kind of, you know, these little outliers, they're perfect. Um, it's the, the, you know, the attention in detail is just, the attention in detail is, is so extensive that you don't even notice it you know you know talking about good uh, comic book art like the the old school comic book guys guys like john ramita and and john Musama, they, their attitude was like you shouldn't notice the art you know if you notice the art i failed in my job you know mm, what i mean it right. should be invisible it, you know because you should be drawn into the story and to me that you know the rendering and the attention to detail in the first range of things is is that same concept i mean I, you know, I'm so drawn into the narrative that I, you know, I don't think, you know, I'm not noticing the gears turning, you know, I can't see the mechanisms and that, it, you know, that's when art to me kind of transcends just entertainment and becomes something else. Right. Cause you're not picking it apart and saying, this doesn't fit, this doesn't fit, this doesn't work. So you're immersed in the experience. Mm. It's, yeah. It's but even, but even like, you know, when things get to be too flashy, you know, it's like, one of the problems, one of the reasons why I don't go see, I certainly don't go see superhero movies anymore because I just totally burnt myself out on that. You know, I mean, working on superheroes day and night kind of tends to <laughs> cure you of any enthusiasm you have for the form. But, um, you know, the CGI, I just find to be so incredibly distracting. I mean, yeah. even good CGI, even good CGI, I just find to be like really hard to watch but you know things that look great on the screen look just absolutely awful on television and um you know if you're not watching those movies i mean i think we're at the end of this i mean I, i've written a number of pieces for the for the blog about you know we really are at the end of the superhero boom and i think this year is kind of bearing that out um you know i said you know we'll still have some big hits but it's like everything else is just kind of shutting down. And I think it's for the best. I, I think that um, a lot of the sort of the negative influences on kids today that I think are um, like manifesting themselves in this like trans movement and. Um... But don't you think that's a, that was a setup and a byproduct of stuff like the X-Men that they were conditioning us for these mutants that were coming and they were banding against the, uh, sort of this mainstream culture. Don't you think that was kind of big? Well, I, 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 I think, um, you know, it's really hard to say because this stuff has always been, you know, these are 
essentially power fantasies for the powerless. I mean, that's how they started, you know, and comic books were always, you know, from the, certainly from my time were very marginal. I mean, most, most kids didn't read them. And I think, but when it came, you know, when the CGI was the real game changer, when CGI became really extensive and really sophisticated, um, I think that these things sort of started feeding into it. And, you know, when you talk about the X-Men, the X-Men movies, um, you know, I mean, Brian Singer. Yeah. You know, what else needs to be said? I mean, right. he was clearly um, using those films for, you know, his own agenda. Yeah. Um, and, you know, clearly, I mean, we know about Brian Singer now. You know, we know who he is. We know he's a, you know, a sex pest and a predator. And, you know, very talented guy, but. Um, and he's still I, I, working, right? He's still working. Is he? I, I mean, he might be working behind the scenes, but, you know, he, I, he, I think he's become a bit radioactive um, because he was sort of, when all that stuff kicked up, he was working on the Freddie Mercury movie, the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody film. And they kind of shunted him aside for that. So, I mean, it isn't just superheroes. I mean, it's Harry Potter. I think Harry Potter, I think, is something that I've always been very skeptical about, that I've always had a real problem with, because I always saw um, Hogwarts, I always called it Sparta with wands. You know, it just reminds me of, um, you know, obviously the British public school system, the boarding school system, which is you know predatory and exploitative and yeah yeah just you know I mean? talks about that he talks about that in his uh in his in his film uh, one of the one of the films that was done on him and he talked about being in those schools and he said when i got there i realized there were two groups there's a group that either beat up on people or you were the beaten up on mm. so i i decided to join the bullies because i didn't want to get beaten up yeah i mean he yeah. Came right out of his mouth yeah, it's, um, you know, basically what they are is kind of like just, you know, like I said, it's, it is like Sparta. It's it's a domesticated version of Sparta, you know. I mean, you know how Sparta, the boys and the girls were separated from very early ages. And, right, the boys are taken from their mothers, too. Yeah, right? the boys are taken from their mothers and, and put in this very harsh militaristic system. And, you know, the, the boarding school system w was kind of like, a descendant of that but it's a descendant of that way of thinking but i always saw like hogwarts is just like i think that harry potter just really had a deleterious effect on the culture and one of the you know a number of reasons one it sort of created this idea of you know the muggles and the magic you know i mean it's like this antagonism it's already sort of a divide and rule concept and also this idea of you know going off to to, to hogwarts and you know, I mean, what would a real life Hogwarts be like? I mean, we know what it would be like because we have case histories to study. But we you know when you add the magic and you add this whole fantasy and the fantasy becomes so vivid and so it's like just beyond your grasp that I think that it, it drove like a generation of kids a little sideways. And the, the more sensitive or the more marginal kids who latched onto these fantasies 
you know, end up in things like Antifa and all this kind of stuff. They have right. this it's, utopian it's a, ideal, you know. Yeah, Harry Potter is a millennial. Um, it's it's a millennial art form, like it's a millennial touch point. Mm. The young millennials are taking Harry Potter in, like this is what's happening, and in a lot of ways, it's emblematic of how they. I mean, I'm a big believer in certain movies connecting them with certain generations, especially like astrologically. Mm -hmm. so, so you're, you're a, you're a Gen Xer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So your movie is star Wars. That's your movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and it's because number one, you're coming of age with star Wars. And number two, the relationship between Luke and Leia, it's a, it's all about broken marriages you know, missing parents, mm, right? Exactly. Yeah. And when you and Gen X has the highest divorce rate, uh, up up to that point, right? Or the the parents have the highest parents parents have the highest divorce rate. So Star Wars becomes a theme for Gen X in a lot of ways. I agree with that completely. Yeah, and each generation has their has their version of it. So I'm a little bit older than you. I was born in 1960. And, mm -hmm. and you're a generation Jones is what they call I'm it. I'm a here. Jones. I'm not a boomer. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for noticing that. I appreciate it. No, that. my wife's a Jones. She was born the same year as you. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so our film is Mary Poppins, which is a version of, of Harry Potter, right? Yeah, Harry, Mary. A good argument. Yeah. Yes. And it's all magical. And, you know, astrologically, my generation is Pluto and Virgo. Right. So, you know, what is she? She raises, she, you know, she's a nanny. Mm. Who does she hang out with? The chimney sweep, right? They're mm. both Virgoan characters just doing everyday sort of things, right? And you're you're Pluto and Libra. So what do you have? You've got the relationship stuff, you know, the the, the light side, the dark side, you know, Luke, come over to the dark side, right? So Harry Potter is the same for the millennials. It's the millennials kind of elixir, right? That's what they get dosed on. And it impacts them moving forward. Yeah, but I also think it instilled like this this expectation of like you know we we are magical we have powers right. beyond right. mortal human beings you know not only Harry but you said like speak that, it into I mean, existence this, right speak it yeah, into I mean, existence yeah I mean all the all the kind of stuff that the millennials were bombarded with from a very early age yeah you know like again I think it just had a very corrosive effect because it it instilled a set of expectations in them that are impossible, that are unfulfillable. Right. And, you know, you come to a certain age and a certain realization that, the, you know, these, I'm never going to become Harry Potter and I'm never going to become Wolverine or I'm never going to become <sighs> Captain America or whatever, you know, all these very rich and immersive fantasies, much more so than comic books. I mean, you know, when you go into those theaters and you see those films and it's just like you are living it. And when you're reading comic books, you know, the, the, the action's taking place in your mind, you know, and, and it's a more intimate relationship between yourself and the artist. Now it's, you know, it's very, um, you know, the millennials are very uh, group oriented. I would, I would almost say mob oriented. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of Hogwarts ex- you know, Xavier Academy kind of thinking. Right, right. It's, I, think yeah, it, yeah. I think it crippled them, you know, because the millennials, you know, and I don't want to bash millennials. I mean, my kids are millennials. I mean, they are all solid Gen Xers in spirit. Right? You know, they're, 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 I mean, if you met, I mean, they've, they're very much 
but they have Gen a collective X. they have a collective intensity though as a group well, well the, there is and you know there's certainly i mean early millennials are much different than the later millennials yeah but um i think this this whole idea of you know this messianic sort of group identity that reminds me a lot in a lot of ways of childhood's end by arthur c clark oh i've, I've talked about the millennials in childhood's end yeah that infinitum yeah absolutely yeah. it's it's right and, you know what was that, clark yeah. you know it's 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 interesting that you know a lot of these kind of stories are you know, feeding these kids with these sort of super being ideas is kind of classic pedo stuff. You know, I mean, great example is Victor Salva with powder, right? I mean, right, you're, you're familiar right. with that situation. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, you also, there have been a lot of stories circulating. I mean, I don't know if they're anecdotal or if there's any proof, but, you know, that the, the kids who were cast in the Harry Potter movies were, a lot of them were uh, sort of preyed upon compromised yeah um so i mean it's, it's just a very interesting dynamic and again i'm not I'm, i don't want to bash the millennials because we're all you know we're all victims of circumstance in a way we're all products of our time and our environment but i think the fact that millennials have are sort of the first generation to to basically have created nothing to basically have not contributed anything to the cultural conversation in any meaningful way. I, I think that, I don't think that's a, a, like some sort of inborn genetic, you know, downfall. I think what it is, it's the culture. It's the way they were raised. You know, it's being raised in a time of absolutely unprecedented um, prosperity, peace and prosperity in, you know, the nineties, which were just, I mean, the nineties were just a dream world. Right. Uh, and it's it's hard, you know, especially after 9-11, you know, when you you face this this much harsher world. And but also, you know, the computers and the social media, the sort of instantaneous it's it's hard to create culture when everything is just under this withering spotlight. So again, it's like I'm not blaming millennials. And it's on demand too. I mean, that's the other thing about how this thing has evolved. Everything's just on demand, mm. which is which is kind of like a cipher for magical powers, right? You hit this button and all of a sudden something happens and it becomes real in some ways. Right. Yeah. And, that, and I think that, I think that adds into their, their evolutionary process. Yeah. And, but again, it's like, I'm not, and there are exceptions to every rule, of course, you know, like the Duffer brothers. I mean, I've always had questions about how involved they actually were in some of the specifics of the storylines, but you know, they, they came up with this idea. But anyway, the point is, is that the, we are all subject, you know, and as an astrologer, you certainly understand this. We're all, we're all subject to forces beyond our control and our reckoning. And I think that I, I'm just, I, I, I hate to say things like this, but I'm just, I'm just very pessimistic about how the system as it was constructed by people who weren't raised that way can survive, you know, with this new thinking, you know, with this new thinking, right. this, this, you know, this more collective thinking um, and these weird magical expectations that have been inculcated through corporate media. Um, 
So and this is this is what I'm saying. You need to prompt me because I'd start no, going no, off I, no, these no, no, no. It's a good tangent. I I have some things to add to that because as an astrologer, you know, I look at Pluto defining generations. Mm-hmm. Millennials are born with Pluto and Scorpio, and what do we know about that? Like Scorpio is about death. You know, mm-hmm. Scorpio is about transformation. And by the way, it's a sign that rules magic. So this would be a generation that would not only be predisposed towards the magical thinking of Harry Potter, but actually acting that out mm-hmm. and, and finding like magical practices for better or worse mm-hmm. to uh, cohere to their, to their mythology and their programming. And we go right back to Arthur C. Clarke in what is childhood's end about. It's about this group of young people that literally destroy the world. They are world destroyers, right? And I think the millennials play a role in that. For better or worse, they are world destroyers. And we're looking at the end of culture, like the culture that we knew. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talked a little bit about this with... Um, uh, I think we're past that point. Uh, well, we've, already, we've seen the end, uh, right. in my estimation. But, they're, but they're, 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 they're like the kids. And again, I know a lot of millennials that are great. I'm not here to, to diss an entire group of people. But collectively, they're like that, that, that tribe of planetary kids at the end of childhood's end that are, that are basically vibrating the planet into non-existence, right? And that's their role. That is their role. Now, I think there's something beyond that. And the, the, the downside is we get to see this kind of unfolding nightmare in a lot of ways, right? And they're big numbers. Like, theoretically, the millennials are the second largest generation after the baby boomers. So we're talking about significant numbers. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing that. And, and I think you would agree that some of the culture does need to die. Like, the stuff oh, that, that you've talked about yeah. articulately about what was going on, like, in Boston or what was going on in China or Vietnam – you know, uh, Iran Contra, like this shit needs to go, right? So how do we how do we exercise those demons and keep the better angels of our experience? I'm not sure we know the answer to that, but I think we're we're watching it now unfold. Well, you know what I was talking about. You know, I can't sort of I can't extrapolate my personal experience onto the water culture because not only is that like incredibly narcissistic <laughs> it's just impossible right i mean but it's just like one of the things that we have to understand and again as an astrologer you understand this is just like everything works in cycles things have beginnings middles and ends yeah. and i think clinging to the forms to the dead forms is like it's like a, a never-ending weekend at bernie's experience you know you're constantly uh cling for dear life to things that are dead and just need to be buried they need to be buried so they can be reborn you know or 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 the parts of them can contribute to the rebirth you know it's like um you know my my mindset i'm i'm very i believe very heavily in reincarnation Mm -hmm. you know and I, i just believe reincarnation is nature's way do you want to come back um well, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I, I, I had written, I, so I had written about, you know, the basis of my belief in reincarnation in The Endless American Midnight. And it has to do with like personal experiences uh, that, that almost seem kind of textbook. Um, I'm sorry, I threw you off track there a little bit. No, keep no, going, it's all right. Going. It's all right. So, but we need to, you know, we need to let go of things. We need to let go. 
you know, when somebody dies, we just, you know, it's not like we just say, well, they never existed or they should, they should never have existed. You know, it's like when, when people who we love die, you know, we still hold them in our hearts. We hold our memories, you know, photographs, things like that. I mean, we still cherish their memories, you know, letting them die is the way the world, the way nature operates. And I think it's the same way, um, you know, with these other, these other forces, it's just like cultures need to die so they can sort of act as compost for something to come next. And and this is another thing that I think, you know, is an important thing to raise as far as, you know, the millennials never in creating anything, A, because they didn't have to, because everything was available to them. On demand, it's on, it's an on demand demand culture. You know, it's in perpetual, you know, I mean, it's like, it never goes, you know, you have access to any number of, you know, cultural artifacts and expressions dating back forever, you know, whatever you want. So why, why would you be, you know, motivated to create your, your own, you know, for instance, so my experience in the hardcore scene, I mean, it's like, so, I mean, hardcore, I think was not like a net positive in, in a lot of ways. Cause I think it, it sort of added a lot of like negative impulses into the well, it's pretty nihilist it's pretty nihilistic as... yeah it was it was it was very violent it was nihilistic um yeah. you know i think there were like sort of undesirable outgrowths of that let's just say but there was a very powerful impetus behind it and the impetus behind it is that people my age you know and people of my sort of inclination just didn't see ourselves in the culture you know we didn't we didn't have anything that expressed our feelings and a lot of our feelings were just like pure rage you know and we had a lot of anger because you know i was a latchkey kid um a lot of you know a lot of these kids were latchkey kids um you know you just grew up without the certainties and you, you were very much aware that you would that these things were taken away from you that the things that other you know generations before you were taken for granted were taken away from you okay so i think that really fired a lot of the sort of the just existential rage that you saw you know and then that i still feel you know i mean i still listen to i still listen to hardcore <laughs> you know i still listen right, to a right. lot i mean i listen to a lot of right. other kinds of music too but i still listen to a lot of metal and hardcore and stuff because it's like it makes me feel good you know it it, it helped you know if i'm feeling bad or depressed or have just some sort of negative emotions and it's very therapeutic. And I think that's something that people tend to overlook, but, um, but we just didn't have anything. And, and what we also had is that we had like sort of our punk rock heroes who we sort of a- adopted as our own, you know, either falling apart or selling out. Right. You know, so you talk about Joe Strummer, it's just like, you know, the clash went from being basically the first hardcore band to doing like rock the Casbah. Right. And like right. everybody I knew was just so disgusted. And, and touring with the who, right? Yeah. And touring with the who exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, you know, just watching all the, you know, so everybody I knew who was into hardcore was into sort of like the, you know, the, the late seventies punk and, you know, some of the more energetic new wave stuff. Right. And then, you know, the, it, you know, the 80s come and all these acts, you know, the record companies say, your record's on selling, you know, 
do this, you know, do this, you know, do a disco song, do, do a soft rock song, whatever. And it, we just right. all felt like really betrayed and let down. Like we just felt like we didn't have representation, you know, that we had, we had adopted these, these acts almost as like our big brothers and our big brothers all let us down. So a lot of the, the re, you know, severe reductionism and puritanism of hardcore was just an extreme reaction to that. It's just like, well, you know, we're going to make it so the record companies have no interest in us. You know, we're, we're going to make it so we can't sell out, you know, and, and that right. became its own downfall. But, you know, so the point is in a very roundabout fashion, what I'm talking about is like that came to be out of necessity. You know, we couldn't get right. into the clubs. You know, we, we had no interest because all the old, you know, all the rock bands that were around, like say in the early eighties, well, mostly leftovers from the early 70s and we're just really running on fumes creatively. I mean, I remember saying, this is a funny story. So I, I won tickets to see Ted Nugent at the Boston Garden in 1980. And I, I remember going there and it was like, place was half full. And it was all like half full with like Beavis and Butthead clones, right? <laughs> so it's really right. depressing. And the Boston Garden was just a dump anyway. And uh, all right. Ted Nugent did the entire time was just swing back and forth like Tarzan on a rope while Derek St. Holmes sang all the songs. And it was just embarrassing. It was just the whole thing was just a farce. Right. But that's, but you know, that's, you know, there were a lot of like people, you know, there's a huge crossover with the skateboarder community in hardcore. And a lot of skateboarders were really into Ted Nugent in the mid 70s and stuff. And, you know, it's just like, again, it's like things live and die. And, but there was always something new in some ways to go to. Like, there's that scene in 24 Hour Party People um, after yeah. they after they see the Sex Pistols, mm -hmm. and they and they go back to um, uh, uh, Tony's buddy, and they're getting high, and he's ripping the posters off the wall. Right, the old rock gods are coming down off the wall, mm. and he and he looks at Bowie's year poster. zero. He looks at Bowie's poster, and he, and he goes gotta go right it's like he even tears bowie off the wall because there was this thing that was happening and in order to go into that thing you had to let go of the past right which is mm. what you're talking about the challenge now is that there's no thing to go to right no, it's, like, is, it's all been exhausted you know? yeah you look out of the horizon like what's out there well it's already been done used to be made by a machine now and if I want to listen to rock and roll, I really have to have to listen to amplified country music because rock's dead, right? So I think this is where we find ourselves. We're at this cultural cul-de-sac in a lot of ways. And well, I mean, there are a lot of things going on. Like I've been on this like stoner metal kick, you know? I don't know if you're familiar with stoner metal, but it's basically, you know, a bunch of bands, they're like, boy we really like those old black sabbath albums right let's, let's yeah. sort of continue in that vein and i always my joke is like stone and metal is like saying metal metal you know <laughs> well i remember all metal is supposed to be stone and metal what i remember uh, versions of that from the early 2000s like there was kind of a thing going on yeah like wolf mother and uh yeah some of those other but, e but even uh queens of the stone age kind of queens like of the stone this, age yeah well, the, yeah yeah well yeah they're sort of like one of the foundational bands yeah but um yeah, I mean, we are sort of at a point that things have been exhausted. But, you know, there's also these macroeconomic 
factors. You know, it's like you could have music scenes in major cities and people could congregate and come together and and really there was cheap of, living. There was cheap living there in the bad parts of town, right? Exactly. Yes. I mean, you know, and even the bad parts of town are expensive now. I mean, I remember back in the '90s when I was working in advertising. Um, you know, I was working at this advertising startup, and it was on the Bowery. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It was yeah, on this yeah. like part. Of, it was right across the street from CBGB's. So it's just like, this is, you know, 20 years before that was, this was like a place you went to get stabbed. So, I mean, it's just, you know, there are other forces, but, you know, I, as an ast- astrologer, I mean, I have very much a sense that we are kind of at the end of a lot of roads right now. I, I think oh, that, absolutely. you know, I think that we're at a lot of, So what happens, and and you can explain the sort of the astrological underpinnings of this, is that at some point in time, everything just became fake. You know, the economy became fake, the culture became fake, our politics became fake, our media became fake. You know, everything is just false. Everything is a constructed narrative. Everything is a simulation. You know, and I'm trying to pinpoint exactly when that happened. Like, when did everything just become fake? But to me, that is like that's like the, what the French would call the fin de siècle. You know, that's the end of that's the end of the cycle. Right. That where, where reality is replaced by the simulation. I, I for whatever 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 you think about Kennedy, his death, real or not, I think it's the death of Kennedy. I think it's the birth of the Beatles. It's the rise of Tavistock culture. It's Johnson. Everything post Kennedy begins to take on this plastic effect i mean even the beatles are singing about rubber soul right yeah no but but to me like i think it's i don't know i think it's sometime in the post 9-11 period because i mean i i understand exactly what you're saying that that's when like the national security state really starts to take hold of everything you know it just becomes this behemoth that just lords over all aspects of culture and politics. Right. But, you know, we still had real things happening, you know, I mean, we still had, you know, say like, so we had the riots in the late sixties and, you know, we had these, you know, these radical movements, um, you know, a lot of obviously were intelligence creations, but, you know, you had, I don't know. It seems like the, the, metaphor I'm looking for is that we went from the world of atoms to the world of electrons. You know, we mm-hmm. went to the world of, of atoms, of, of things moving, you know, of, of metal and wood and wire and, and just things happening, blood and flesh and to right. this pure kind of uh, projection. It's a, it's, a, it's a digital world. It's, a, it's the zero and one world. I think that's what you're honing in on. And post 9-11, I mean, I mean, let's look at 9-11 for a minute. Like how many, how many versions of what happened on 9-11 are out there? You know, how many versions of no planes, planes, right? Now we're in mm. this kind we're in this kind of occultic world of replacing imagery. Like I think 9-11 is huge and more important than people understand from a geopolitical perspective and from an occult perspective. It's massive. We're not the same after 9-11. Yeah, well, I mean, so I did this presentation for my Patreon, and 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work I've done. What people call astrotheology. Um, I don't like that term because I don't like the connotations behind it, because to me, it seems like very um, kind of 90s Usenet skeptic movement stuff. Right. Oh, it's just this. You know. Yeah, I think I, it's, a loaded I, it's a loaded term. Yeah, but so I, I, I can maybe send you a link to, to the presentation. I'd done a presentation down in Cancun for this uh, Astronosis Conference. And I showed the specific astrological or astronomical <clears throat> symbolism at work in 9-11. Because, I mean, you're familiar with, um, so where the ecliptic meets the uh, galactic plane just above Orion, right. right? I mean, what do you have? You right. have the twins and then the you twins, have the Pentagon. Right. The Pentagon of Auriga, right. right? So you have the twins of Gemini, right. and then you have the Auriga, which is a Pentagon. Right. So it's like if you get rid of those, then you can ascend to Cepheus, which is the garden, which is God. Which right. So I see this. Uh, I see this all as um, very tied into uh, like Watcher worship and Nephilim worship, which I think is the kind of the true basis of a lot of elite belief systems, and it's something that I've been you know, following for a number of years now. But I, I think that it's it's much more an underpinning, you know, this idea of, you know, the Watcher Angels are the good ones because they brought technology. I mean, you know, that's the story that we have. And we have right, right. a number of different iterations of that, you know, in the Book of the Watchers and the Book of Jubilees and Enoch and so on. Right. Um, so it's just like, all right, so the Watcher Angels were the ones, you know, those are the good guys, you know, they're the, they're the ones who came to teach us how to do all this stuff and everything like that. And, and we have this whole history of like these almost like trickster gods who are also, you know, civilizational gods. And, and they, a lot of them come from the abyss, you know, Osiris, Oannes, right? right? Associated with the oceans and everything. And, you know, you, you know, all the stories where the, the, um, galactic plane below the ecliptic is associated with the abyss and the, right. the waters and the deep and so on. Right. So, I mean, that's how I see 9-11 is that it's, um, and, and I sort of detail it, how I see it as um, very much a watcher ritual. And it's interesting to me too, because we have the Chamber Street um, subway station right near World Trade Center. We have all the eyes, you know, it's called mm -hmm. the Oculus. And, um, and then you have right. the Oculus, where World Trade Center now is the Oculus. And it's like, it looks, you know, you could see it as like angels rising from the deep, you know, from the subway, the subway, right? Right, right, right. The subway, okay? Right. Uh, just think about that for a minute. Right. So, I mean- We're, we're yeah. the doms, you're the subs. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting too, because, you know, one thing that uh, people who- familiar with my work i mean i was working in lower manhattan at that time and as a matter of fact in the month of august like i was in that neighborhood pretty much i was there day. i was there too not every day but i was i was in the uh the subway station in august yeah uh, so you know what exactly what i'm talking about um yeah because i was working i was working for this uh, place called media works on on lexington it was, it was lexington right no lafayette on lafayette street 
Um, so I was into that. And then I had uh, a buddy of mine who lived on South End Avenue and we were working on a, um, a film treatment together. So like, that's where I'd be on the weekend. So I'd take the ferry in from Hoboken into uh, World Trade Center. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But it's just like, I, I see, you know, that astronaut, and this is something you and I should discuss off air is, you know, I'd, I'd like you to have a look at a lot of the symbolism. Yeah, I'd love to, because there's a ton of Gemini symbolism in the uh, in the in the mundane chart for that moment the moon was in gemini saturn was in gemini you're dealing with the twins and it gets into the main characters the main players of 911 like larry silverstein who's a gemini rudy giuliani's a gemini donald mm. trump is a gemini oh, it goes all the way back it goes back to the 60s where jfk was a gemini george w Bush, george h w bush is a gemini right oh all that moves forward to 9-11, right? You're dealing with the Twin Towers. So from a mundane perspective, these are other pieces that fit your astrotheological construct. It's all there. Mm. It's all there. And then, then they're going to create one tower to rule all, right? They're going to eliminate this idea of duality, but we're going to run the reality that comes after duality. And yeah, I, th I think that, yeah, that's very true. And it's like... Um, you know, I see Nimrod in the Tower of Babel, you know, so they put up that tower. Um, Which looks like a giant hypodermic needle, by the way. Yeah, but but it's also, if you look at it closely, I mean, this is one of the things I talk about. It, it also has Cepheus kind of encoded into it. Yeah. Uh, and I can show you that because it has sort of like the square base and then the... Yeah, you know, I would love to take a look at that and maybe have you back on my Sunday night show, which is just, you know, based on astrology. And we could we could just dive into that thing i'd love to do that yeah i'll send you the link to the video but anyhow okay. um yeah see this is me going off on tangents like no no it's a good tangent i'm a tangent guy let's keep going <laughs> because i'll tell you where i want to go but oh, no, so let me just tell you i just okay. want to tell you one last thing so um uh the astro or the astronosis conference um was put on by uh miguel connor i don't do you know miguel no uh, miguel connor does uh aeon bite gnostic radio oh I, i'm familiar with that yeah. yeah so he had a very interesting theory and his, one of his theories was that um you know 9 11 in, in a lot of ways was an assault on generation x so generation x was you know i mean the oldest xer at that time was 36 right, right. old enough to become president right and you know we, we've had this phenomenon where the boomers just continue <laughs> to cling to power, you know, when, when most normal generations would have long retired, right? Right. Um, so, he, you know, he saw that, and you'd have to ask him for the, the specifics, but he saw that as like an attack on the, the rise of Gen X. And Gen X, you know, it's interesting that they've since been, you know, or we've been sort of written out of, history <laughs> you know, well, which is like we shame. don't exist anymore well it's We're, a shame because it's a really interesting generation i've looked at this astrologically the outer planets for gen x are basically pluto and libra which i i like neptune and sagittarius which is exalted and filled with mysticism and wisdom and then you have uranus in either sagittarius or scorpio and uranus and scorpio is exalted and it's all about you know evolution right so as a generation gen x with the outer planets is wired to do really interesting things 
more so than some other generations, in my opinion. And maybe this is at the root of that. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. Again, it's not my theory, so I can't really go into the specifics of it. But, right. um, you know, so there you go. But, so, okay, here, here's where I wanted to go with, with ultimately, and we kind of got there through 9-11. Uh, two days ago, we had the quote-unquote destruction of the Georgia Guidestones. Okay. Yes, yes. What is your take on this? There's a lot of different takes going on, but it kind of gets into the 9-11 world because it happens on George Bush's George W. Bush's birthday, mm. who's overseeing 9-11, right? So mm. there's a lot of really, and I think it was erected on 322-1980. And, yes, yes. and now we get into Skull and Bones and then yes. George Bush again. Yes. Okay. Why don't we start there? And you 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 have you have the stage here and just you know run with this thing for a while. Well, one of the things that I always found interesting about the Georgia Guidestones is that you know, this whole Rosicrucian connection. So a lot of people who are stupid sort of see like, oh, you know, they subscribe to the sort of like left-right binary or this uh, occult Christian binary, like that, that these people are all like set in these categories that, you know, they're like, like a, a rabbit on a track, at a, you know, at a dog race. They can't get off, they, you know, it's like you're setting that for life. And if you really look at history, you understand that things are much murkier, particularly at an elite level. Okay, you know, when you get an elite level, things start to, you know, get very strange, and there are a lot of strange bedfellows. So there is this kind of like um, post-theosophical, post-Rosicrucian mindset that you saw, um, obviously involved in the creation of the United Nations, right? You know, because we know about Robert Mueller and and Alice Bailey and all these kind of things. So. The Georgia Guidestones seem to me like, because they, these are eugenics and then they've traced it to this guy who sort of uh, was a David Duke supporter and all these kind of things. So it's like things start to get very murky when you get above, you know, the, the, the plebes. You know, when you get above the plebe level, things get weird. Yeah. And so there's this fascinating discourse that took place where, um, you know, you sort of like, team left or team blue on blood on Twitter was like, Oh, you know, this is like, what was that woman that candidate from Georgia said they should be blown up. And this is all this kind of like, you know, everything has, to, you know, the millennials are horrible with this, but everything has to be injected into this whole dichotomy, this, this whole fake dichotomy that nobody at above the plebe level subscribes to. Okay, absolutely nobody. So that's what I see sort of like this idea that's like, so it's like this right wing guy, but he's talking about world government and world courts and a world language, you know, this kind of stuff that we associate with uh, the people who came to associate with the left, but it really comes from Alice Bailey. And Alice right. Bailey was like, you know, she's saying that, you know, the, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were like, you know, exalted by the great white brotherhood and they were right. you know a symbol you know she had some pretty extreme ideas well so so she would identify as, as extreme right wing. she was a nobody until she hooked up with foster bailey who was a 33rd degree mason i mean she was kind of considered this you know kind of well-meaning but not very successful kind of medium in southern california who would hang out at esoteric bookstores 
And she marries this guy, Foster Bailey, who's a 33rd degree Mason. And all of a sudden he's going like this. I got something on my hands here. Yeah, I right? think I think that was all um, an operation. I think it was a, a, a British intelligence operation. I mean, not exactly sure what the office would be at that point in time. But I think that it was all, I, I think that the Luce's Trust and Alice Bailey um, were just basically operations, uh, intelligence operations. And I go into this because I talk, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but I, I've talked a lot about how the Cthulhu mythos uh, that H.P. Lovecraft wrote about really comes straight from Alice Bailey's books. You know, she's put for, you know, the Atlanteans, I mean, she uses slightly different terminology, but she uses a lot of the same terminology, like the right. old ones and the great ones and everything like that. So, you know, if you look at like Lovecraft's history, um, he seems to have very strange friends, you know, uh, you know, the most extreme example would be Houdini, right? British intelligence agent, but also this guy named E. Hoffman Price, who clearly to me was army intelligence um, and was feeding, he was the guy who was feeding Lovecraft all this theosophical stuff, like the book of Dazan and everything like that. So get, so this all does tie back to the Georgia Guidestones, but it, so it's like, there's this level um, that's very much tied into intelligence, but also some of these elite, you know, you, you'd mentioned uh, Tavistock and everything like that, um, that has views that some people have come to associate with the, the quote unquote left, but also other views that people have come to associate with the extreme right. Okay. Like, so eugenic, it's like, like eugenics. Eugenics is baked in there as well and that's kind of yeah you, right yeah there, right exactly yeah. so i see the georgia guidestones as very much an outgrowth of this you know this alice bailey level uh post theosophy level um sort of the quasi new age level but there was a lot of overlap you know not only with right-wing politics but extreme right politics yeah. um you know like the silver shirts and so on the, the guy that the guy that funded it was, I think, influenced by William Shockley. Well, I think he was friends with Shockley. I think he was, yeah, he was friends with Shockley. But Shockley, you know, there's a transistor for you. Right. You know, that's Lucifer's technologies. You know, this the transistor, which just sort of pops up out of nowhere, you know. And yeah. there's, you know, people say, oh, there's precursors and everything. But I actually went back and I read the patent applications and there was no workable, feasible precursor to the transistor even everything right. anything that we would recognize as such it i mean it really just did pop out of nowhere um but that's again a whole other conversation so back to the guidestones i mean my gut sort of tells me that it was an inside job that it was time for it to come down you know like it, it served its purpose and it was time to go um and it's like when, when i look at the, tra the trade towers you know i mean there are any number of stories, you know, all these things that we'd see in media, 9-11 or the, the, the towers coming down or anything, anything like that. And it's just like those towers were built to be destroyed. Absolutely. And in, in my estimation. And yep. then there's a lot of Masonic stuff where like 2001, September 1st, 2001 is like in the, in the Coptic calendar, the ancient Egyptian calendars, uh, you know, it's the first of the year. It's the new year of the year 1717, if you follow the Coptic calendar. So, 
1717. I don't think I need to explain that to you, right? So I there, there's a lot of things, but my feeling is that it was time to come down. And, and maybe it was time to come down because it's like this layer that I talk about, this this uh, loosest layer, this this strange connection that you have between sort of like a lot of these UN groups and like at the Rockefeller level and so on. But this, you know, this agenda, this eugenics agenda, this depopulation agenda, obviously. Um, it, and, you know, the with the uh, coinciding with um, George W. Bush's birthday, obviously. Uh, yeah, it just, it feels, I mean, they might find some patsy to take the fall for it, but it, it feels to me like it was an inside job, that it was time for those things to come down. And uh, this falls, you know, my thinking about ritual, that so many of the, so many of the things that we see in history, you know, a lot of major events and stuff that we can't understand only makes sense when you put them in a ritual context. When you, when you plug them into ritual context and you, when you understand the, the traditions that they're drawing on, then they, they explain themselves. Right. They really do. They really do explain themselves. It's, it's, there's so many things. And you know, I've talked about this at ex, excruciating length on, on the blog that a lot of things that we don't understand in, in public kind of events and so on um, make perfect sense if you understand the ritual elements. The ritual behind them. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. You said something in the uh, Higher Side Chats interview that you did recently that I wanted to comment on, which I thought uh, was interesting. And it and it's a stark contrast to, like, say, the, the high sorcery of these rituals. And I agree with you with what you said, by the way, because Greg brought up uh, uh, the WF and Klaus Schwab. And I was watching some of those videotaped interviews with people at Davos. And I'm like, pardon my language here. These people are fucking idiots. They really are. They're like idiots. So you have this whole cast of characters who are average at best, right? And they're the ones that are sent out to do the dirty work, you know, the everyday work, pass the memos, send out the emails, coordinate on the messaging. But they're in stark contrast with this other level that seems to be above them that is engaged in this kind of ritualistic um, sort of administration of reality. So where, where are you with that? And what do you think is going to happen to what they, they used to call these useful dupes or useful idiots? A lot of times they don't have happy endings. Um, and it almost seems like there's a kind of sadism on the part of their handlers to humiliate them on the way down. Um, you know, we've seen this a lot throughout history. Uh, people who serve the system and are no longer useful are kind of discarded. Um, I just want to like, so when you talk about that level above, the, above like say like a, a Schwab level. Um, or maybe even above Schwab. I'm not even sure about like I don't, but, Schwab's but, credentials either. I mean, clearly he's I, got I, some. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, but who could it be? It's like, one of the things I thought was really interesting at Davos was um, like Henry Kissinger being the voice of reason on Ukraine. Like Henry Kissinger, you know, nobody would call a peacenik right. um, saying it's time for the Ukrainians to sue for peace. 
or otherwise their country will just be utterly destroyed. And uh, that was like shocking to me. I mean, my sense is that, you know, if there is a layer above, say, the Schwab layer, there's certainly nothing like what the, that layer used to be. Because we've been living in a time of unprecedented comfort and security and prosperity. And that softens people. Yeah. You know, um, it used to be, you know, when we talk about the, like the private schools and it's like, you know, the, the, the war was won on the fields of Eton, you know, that old expression that the British had. Um, you know, where if you were going to go into a higher, you know, some sort of leadership role in service of the empire, you were expected to like go out and fight wars. You know, you're expected to go out and like experience privation and, and horror and hardship because that toughened you. Right. You know, that was the crucible. That was like, um, you know, that remember that old ad, the, the Marines, when they're, you know, they're, they're hammering the, the sword and it's like, yeah. you know, this is going to toughen you up and everything like that. Yeah. So it's just like, I mean, who could they be? Who, who could they be at this point in time? Because a lot of these, so there's this whole idea of these like hereditary families, but it, it's pretty well documented that fortunes are kind of won and lost within three generations. And it's it's very difficult to maintain generational wealth because, of, because the, of the softness, the softness, right? You get down to that third generation and they're like, hey, we just want to you know, enjoy the fruits of the land here, right? I mean, that's what happens. So they get yeah, you don't, want, you don't want to go out and, and fight in the trenches somewhere. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't know who that layer could be. Right. I, I just, I just don't, I don't. And, you know, it always seems to me like the sort of endless goalpost move, you know, when we discover, you know, we watch Davos and we realize these people are all idiots, which they are, yeah. they're all functionaries, you know, they're, and one thing that I've come to see is like, I see, you know, the demon is the system itself. The, the demon is such is self-perpetuating. The demon has its own, uh, the system has its own intelligence. The system has its own drive and will and goals. You know, the system is the egregore, right? The system is the construct. The system is the, the sorcerer's apprentice that becomes the master and, and takes on its own agenda. Because what, you know, what, again, like what you see is that these people are all just imbeciles. And, you know, I'm not saying that to like, cast dispersions i mean it's just and these people are just objectively not that intelligent they're certainly not geniuses you know one of the things i've been doing a lot on, on twitter because it drives me nuts is that anytime was that guy yuval noah harari right yeah. or something i'm just like you know because he's always talking like all these futuristic proclamations and i say this guy's a historian he's not a scientist he's he has no engineering or or computer science background he has absolutely no, these are just his opinions. They're no different than your or my opinions. They're no more informed than, than your opinions or mine. Um, he just has this megaphone that's given to him by the, the, the WEF. And everybody just but nods the shit their he head. he says is stupid. Everybody just nods their head. Oh, wow. That's, that's brilliant. That's genius. You know, oh, I see where the future is. Nobody ever questions his sanity. That's no, the other part. Yeah, the sanity. The sanity and, part. And, 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 you know, in Elon Musk, you know, saying we're going to Mars next year. I mean, he's been saying that for, for God knows how long. When Nobody's ever going to Mars. Ever. Ever. Nobody's ever going to Mars. Ever. It's just not, it's never going to happen. And, 
you know, my expression is nobody's going anywhere. No one's going anywhere because it's like, whatever your views are like globe earth, flat earth, whatever, I'm not even going to talk about that. I'm just right, saying, right. you know, for, just based on the science that we've been presented with, you, you know, you cannot go and build a base on the moon because there's no water there. Or, you know, we, we, that's what scientists tell us. There's no water there. Um, you know, who is going to sit in a tin can for three months to get to Mars? Nobody. It's just not going to happen. It's just like, and what are you going to do when you get there? You know what I mean? There's just, there's nothing there. There's nothing for us outside the biosphere. There really isn't. Uh, you know, all we have is here and outs everything outside it is just death. Okay. And that's just if you go by standard issue kind of commercial corporate science. I mean, even by their own standards, there's nowhere to go to. It's like, oh, we're going to go mine asteroids for precious minerals. No, you're not. That's never going to happen. You're not going to do that. It's just like the logistics of that are impossible. You know, how are you going to get um, all this prefabricated habitat metal, you know, all these, all these, you know, the, the tubes and the wires and the uh, the panels and the struts and you know all this kind of thing that you need to build a habitat on the moon how are you going to get it up there how are you going to get it up there it's just, it's just never going to happen i i really believe that the space program i've really come to believe that space programs are just basically ways of getting uh around um like these old missile testing treaties you know i think what they're really testing is like ICBMs and so on. And just this whole idea of like spacecraft is just ludicrous. I, I just think it's really ludicrous. And believe me, I used to believe all that stuff. But why did I believe all that stuff? Because of media and Hollywood. You know, because uh, comic I- Comic books, comic books. And comic books, you know, it's yeah. like, I would go see a movie like, I don't know, Star Wars or 2001 or Star Trek. And I was like, that was my conditioning. And I just realized it's all fake. It's, none of that is ever going to happen. It's just never going to happen. I, I know people, some people get angry at me, you know, and I'm just like, no, it's just, it's impossible. It just cannot be done. And, you know, if you listen to my, my uh, appearances on Greg, I mean, it's like, I am very pessimistic about the future of, of just the technology that we already have, you know, because technology is not self-sustaining. Technology does not run itself. You know, no matter how many bullshit stories we hear about artificial intelligence, you know, these, these machines don't run themselves. They all have to be maintained by very highly skilled people. And in, in the case of the infrastructure, it has to be, you know, guys with a lot of the high T you know what I'm saying? It's like guys with a lot of right. balls, you know, it's like right. getting up on these, you know, uh, high tension towers or, you know, even just like, telephone poles or you know never mind on top you know these uh transmitters on the top of these skyscrapers and everything like that i mean that's scary work i could never do that absolutely you know, I, I have a friend who uh who you know was worked for uh verizon he's retired now retired he's my age but um you know he's one of these guys who would get up in the cherry pickers during storms and and fix the wiring you know who's going to do that now and this is what I'm talking about. It's just like, well, that gets down into a whole discussion about basic skills. I mean, well, that's what I'm, that's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Just like yeah. we had, we had this weird, I would say almost suicidal inclination that like blue collar work 
learning trades, uh, you know, fixing the phone lines, doing all this stuff was like, that was like for the, you know, the deltas, you know, that was just right. like, that was, that was monkey work, right? Any, anybody could do that, which is a lie. And it, it's not as important as these people just like shuffling papers around in Wall Street or these people just talking bullshit on MSNBC. You know, like that's, those are the exalted ones. Those right. people are nothing. Okay, the people yeah. on, and you can see this on Twitter, like all these media people are just in this constant state of meltdown because they realize that they, anybody can do what they do. They, yeah. they really can. I mean, you know, and you talk about Davos, none of those people are particularly intelligent. I mean, they, they are well-educated, you know. But there's not an original thought in their brain. No, nothing, nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's, because yeah, original, I mean, thought, original thought is punished. Original yeah. thought is actively discouraged. And right. And a lot and of what the woke shit is re- about. Rewarded, right? They, they reward you for, you know, basically spouting kind of a, a refabricated ver- version of the party line, whether it's, you know, sh- social theory or critical theory. You're rewarded for that. Yes. So, what, you know, we are at the end of the, the globalization program, which started really in, I would say, in the first Bush, you know, George H.W. Bush. Yes, That's yes. when we started hearing this phrase, international community. So I'd, I'd listen to NPR, like all things considered. And it's like, well, the international community said this. And it's like, who the fuck are the international community? <laughs> like, who are you talking? Like, who are you referring right. to? Who is this Who is this body that is called the international community that you, you uh, reach out to for an opinion on, you know, the news of the day? I mean, it's, but it's just like, it was really... Um, corporatism run amok you know and a lot of kids are very down on capitalism but they don't understand that what they're really down on is corporatism you know corporate right. capitalism and and global globalism put simply is corporate capitalism unfettered you know corporate capitalism with the reins off you know um with the gloves off too and the rest of the world is tired of it. The rest of the world is sick of it. And, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, this is all just part of this overarching plan and, and everything is just kind of an act and everything. And yeah, well, there's always the outside possibility that's true, but um, I, I just find that hard to swallow in this day and age when we don't have, you know, say back in the first Bush administration, we had, very tight control on the conversation you know that there were just a small number of outlets for news and information right and, and sunday mornings you got the capitol hill gang right like yeah 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 more telling you what to think. all these guys if you're left around. yeah the mclaughlin group if you're left yeah. you know believe what um uh, eleanor cliff said if if you're right believe what pappy can says yeah exactly um i was on a flight one time with bob novak Oh, was he? Yeah, I, I was coming back from Mexico, and he was on the same flight from L.A. to the Bay Area. Yeah, and um, was he being a curmudgeon? Well, so so Clinton had just beaten Bush. Yeah, and he was on the on on the uh, sidewalk waiting for a car or something, right? And I'm out there with him, and I and I walked him. I said, "So, uh, what about that new world order?" <laughs> and he said, "It's over. New world order is over." <laughs> Like, well, okay. certainly, I think certainly that fares with it, but it's like the, the capitalist corporatist 
Yeah. And I, I just prefer the term corporatist because I, I think it's it's more accurate. So the corporatist world order kind of arose from those ashes. And, you know, the, that whole w line of thinking that we saw in the Guidestones, you know, kind of under was the underpinning of that. Yeah. And again, it's like people just don't understand that like ideology is for the plebes. You know, the people at that level are just looking at spreadsheets all day. You know, I always point people, you know, it's almost 50 years old now, but it's as relevant as ever that the Ned Beatty speech in network. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Because that, I mean, it's, it's a work of genius, you know? Yeah. And it's like, that was before, uh, you know, Wall Street and the Pentagon took, took hold of Hollywood and, and, I guess put a stop to all that kind of thing, but that is, uh, you know, that's like when you get a, a peek behind the curtain because it, the the truths, that's how they think. That's that's really how they think. Well, Anthony Sutton got into this in a big way when he went down his rabbit hole and got into the whole relationship of power, and he he got there going through skull and bones. He said they don't care what side they're on, right? No. They don't care if they're on the left or the right. They're just into power, and they'll they'll move it they'll, they'll move the the needle any way they want to whatever it whenever it suits their purposes to achieve a certain goal that's well, so you I and i are, so you and i are older right yeah like i i i guess i've lived long enough to see everything that i thought the left stood for become what the today you know the the, the fake blue twitter left is against or, or the things that the left were supposed to be against, the left now is for, you know, the corporate as well. It's, it's weird because there is so War, surveillance, yeah. I mean, all the stuff. I mean, right. and, you know, if you were a leftist, you were supposed to be for free speech. You're supposed to be against war. You're supposed to be, uh, you know, against surveillance and, and the there CIA. There was even a kind of a conspiratorial side with the left. Like they would go and like break down COINTELPRO and all mm, that stuff right yeah, exactly. now they don't even want to look at it. it's like no 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 we don't want to go there no because yeah. it's not the left anymore they're just they're they're just now the lap dogs you know the purse puppies of the national security state right and everything they believe has been dictated to them and they don't question it they don't test it they don't question it um you know i mean if antifa was for real and not just some sort of weird uh cointel pro project you know, they'd be going after the banks. They'd be, you know, they'd be, they wouldn't be like burning down some local coffee shop. They'd be, you know, finding where the, you know, the uh, Vanguard and BlackRock offices are in their town. And right. they'd, they'd figure out where Jamie Dimon lives, right? Yeah, exactly. Very so I mean, fake. It's, it's yeah. all, but that's what I'm talking about. Everything is fake now. Everything is a hoax. Everything is a production. And I think that, I mean, I would have to do more specific study on this, but I think this is just a feature of of late imperial decline cultures and decline yeah i mean it reminds me of you know like the court what was it of louis 16th you know before the revolution you know and it just they just created this this sort of walled garden this little fantasy world that had nothing to do with the world that was going on outside the, the walls right. and i think that you know the, the present power structure is trying to do that now but listen, I mean, power structures fall, elites fall, you know, even at the highest level, elites fall are taken right. out, taken down. Um, I know a lot of people sort of raised 
you know, sort of cut their teeth on a lot of this sort of leftover 80s and 90s conspiracy stuff, you know, like Fritz, Fritz Springmeier or something, you know, where these like 13 families and, are, you know, like of the Illuminati and everything like that. And it's just like, you know, come on. You know, I, I think that's just, I, I think that's a flight from reality because I think in, in many ways, the, the real reality is more frightening and, you know, the, the it's more pervasive, but it's also more nebulous. It's, you know, it's harder to pin a target on, but the, the present elites are going to fall within our lifetime. They are. I, I, I would argue that they're in the, I think they're. I think so. they're in the process of falling. I would yeah. Agree. So it's just like these things take time. You know, they're not sudden. You know, I mean, just look at you know, there's a line of thinking that I subscribe to that there wasn't two world wars. There was one world war with an interregnum. Right. You know what I mean? Like with yeah. an armistice. Right. But it was all just the same players and the same processes working themselves out. And what did that take? I mean, that took more than 30 years right? right and then i i mean i really honestly believe that we're at the end of the ruling structure as we knew it in the west um and in a lot of ways they have no one to blame for themselves but in a lot of ways it's just inevitable it's just inevitable you know you know you're an astrologer so you understand cycles i mean right. astrology really ultimately is about cycles yeah so cycles of time that things repeat themselves you know and there are certain ways that we can understand how they repeat themselves and when they repeat themselves and you just understand that things just rise and fall and always have and always will and it's just we we cannot define nature and, and this is another thing that i think is is a, a a hallmark of imperial decline is this idea that you can define nature and i think the impetus behind that is realizing that nature is not on your side you know what i mean it's like nature turns on you because it's time for you to go right and then you start to defy it and you start to create this fantasy world like i said with you know the court of louis the 16th and marie antoinette and all the rest of it you know right. we kind of see you know versions of that but also this flight from reality with like you know the trans movement quote-unquote trans movement because you know listen i i have sympathy for people who honestly have gender dysphoria i really do i think it's a real a real condition i just don't think it's anywhere near the scale that we're seeing it at today i right. think this is right. a cult yeah but there are any number of cults but it's just like look at what look at it is what happening uh you know big tech is starting to experience layoffs i mean all these big companies have lost a lot of them the legacy media companies too legacy media but also but, really you know, going down Facebook has lost half of their market cap in the past year. Netflix right. has lost 70%. Disney has lost, I think, almost 50%. It's continuing yeah. to lose market cap. Um, those are the numbers that they care about. You know what I'm saying? And there's this whole woke contagion, which is another one of these flight from reality cults that is, you know, that they see as a way to fend off, you know, the hoi polloi, right? You know, to keep the, the pitchfork brigades from their gates but that's not working either and it's no that's you, know, that's this, gonna, you cannot define nature you know it's like you know the the wise emperor you know realizes when it's time to leave the world stage but unfortunately all we have now are idiots with no wisdom you know right 
we're coming up on two hours here and that's usually about how long I go. So a couple more questions I wanted to ask before we uh, tapped out today. Actually, one thing I wanted to bring up then a question I wanted to ask you. So one of the things that I looked at was the change in fixed star regulus going from Leo to Virgo. And that happened back in 2011. All right. And, and a day later is when Occupy Wall Street happens. Mm -hmm. So you have this fixed star regulus in Leo, which is associated with kings and queens and mm -hmm. the hero's yeah, the journey. Name, the, regulus, yeah. Right. The hero's <laughs> journey, right? The hero's journey in Leo. It, we're, we're kind of, we're born and bred into that context. Like, you know, life is a quest. You know, you find yourself along the way, you know, and if, you, if you're good enough and brave enough, you know, you get the Holy Grail, right? That's part of our, our mythos. And then it changes and it goes into Virgo, which is a very different sign. And it's not about that. It's more about the barista, right? Or the everyday person. And then almost to the, to the, to the day, Occupy Wall Street happens. And, mm. and, and now we have this new movement, which I think dovetails into what you're talking about with this um, anti-capitalist thing, which really should be anti-corporatist. But this also gets back to what you were saying earlier about uh, Harry Potter, is that you know if the people from Hogwarts need power, then they have to abide by the sorcerers who give them the power, right? Mm. And and so the so what we're dealing with now is corporate sorcery, mm. and 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 the corporation or corporatism has become the Hogwarts, which is why they're they they have an allegiance to it because they derive some kind of power. Because the corporation said, screw profit, right? We're going to go into the whole stakeholders world and we're going to make sure it's about people, not profits. But what are they really saying? We're going to empower these people. And we, theoretically, they're going to get the magical powers from us so they can take the old world order down. Which brings us back to childhood's end. Yeah, well, so Arthur C. Clarke was very much a product of the British intelligence establishment. Yeah. He was very much in with those people. He was part of military intelligence. Okay. And he was also, you know, uh, a sex pest. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. I mean, that's like the whole idea of childhood, just the title childhood's end is a little, <laughs> it's a little well, bit it's of a loaded, a, it's a loaded title. Yeah. A little bit of double entendre there. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, so if you look at the, the late stage of the British Empire, they had the wisdom to realize that they could not run a boots on the ground empire anymore. You know, um, the playing field had been leveled in a lot of ways and they could no longer sustain this, right? So they became a corporate empire, you know, which they are today and they're still an extremely powerful corporate empire. I, I don't think people really understand that. In the same way, so people will look at the uh, church attendance, uh, you know, say at Catholic mass and say, well, you know, the Catholic church is clearly on the way, not realizing that the Catholic church's real business is real estate. Right. You know, they're one of the largest holders of real estate in the world, as is the, the queen. British crown, the right. queen of England. Yeah. So these are, these have both become virtual empires in a way, you know, they don't need, they don't need the people streaming into the pews because in a lot of ways they that was a 
a liability because the you know, people needed to be a lot of times needed charity and needed to be fed and you know needed a lot of attention you know it was expensive to sort of maintain this physical empire and that's so but the thing is that virtual to me means fake right so it's just like these empires became fake and i think we're sort of on that you know we're on that road ourselves the american empire in many ways is an outgrowth of the british empire obviously but so we're just at that end <clears throat> and um like i said i think it's a very common inclination you know understandable inclination to not want to accept these realities to not want to you know accept the fact that the ride's almost over um and i think that there's a lot of cope that comes with that and i think this whole you know like what we're seeing with uh, dei which is diversity equity and inclusion that you know vanguard and right state street and blackrock and blackstone and all you know all these right. big capital funds are pushing the death stars yeah but it's just like so but you know the thing i always point out is that dei means god in latin so right. it's like this is their new god right but it's a, it's a false god that that nobody believes in and you know that church is collapsing so i mean a lot of what we've been seeing and what we saw for the past 20 years in the post 9-11 period, you know, particularly I think that really rose into its own during the Obama administration, which was just to me entirely, everything was fake about it. Everything from, from soup to nuts. It was, right. it was like, the, like the fake hoax. The, I mean, he, he, he's a, a, the, even the Genesis story of Obama's. Yeah. I mean, everything about fake. it is, 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 is utterly fake, but it was all being, um, powered along by free money, you know, interest-free money. But also, you know, the, if you listen to my uh, appearance on Greg, I want to talk about like money laundering, you know? Yeah. I, I yeah. think that people don't understand how important money laundering is to the larger economy, the macro economy. And a lot of that was drug money. Okay. A lot of that was drug money. Going through Silicon Valley. Yeah, and right. you know, and it fed Hollywood and it fed Silicon Valley and it fed Wall Street. But you know, all good things must come to an end. And you know, we're seeing the end of that. We're seeing the end of the, the large-scale money laundering. But a lot of that money is also being pulled back, you know. So like China, you know, what you know, this whole uh, phenomenon of the BRICS, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Now no, but a number of other countries are sort of signing on to this program, you know, this, this new alliance. So a lot of that money is just being pulled back into their own economies. Um, you know, like I'm not an economist. I'm just talking about sort of like these macro movements. I can't explain the mechanisms behind it, but um, I'm just seeing what's happening, you know, and like the money tide is going out. The money tide is going out. Yeah. And what was feeding so much, you know, for instance, the Hollywood blockbuster, was being fed by money laundering. You know, these movies didn't really actually cost $200 million. You know, it's like what they call Hollywood account, uh, accounting because they, they had to account for all this laundered money. Um, and that's, you know, that's something you can go out and read about. This is something that's documented. This is not right. just opinion. So the money tide is going out, but I, at the same time, the money tide is going out. It's like that the global vassals are tired of being, you know, on the shit end of the stick and 
we're going to see this, you know, this is why we're going to have like these supply chain dis disruptions. And it's also, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's going to be a lot of manipulation, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, bad actors, you know, right. imposing themselves on these, on these larger realities and exploiting them and exploiting us. I mean, that's definitely, you know, we're all going to, we're all in for rough, rough ride. We're all in for choppy waters. I'm not right. saying anything differently. I've never, I've never said anything differently, but I think that, at the end of this process, you know, there, there is at least the opportunity for uh, a more balanced system, you know, a yeah. more you know, not where like CEOs are making a hundred thousand times, you know, their average salary workers, like what we have now, these absurd, I'm not obviously not a hundred thousand times, but you know, these ludicrous kind of significant, yeah, these, these ludicrous inequities. Or even the valuation of a company like Netflix, which does not turn a profit. Never has. Yeah. And, and yet it has been propped up by Wall Street because, well, we're looking at future valuation. But and also you, social engineering, too. Yeah. You know, I mean, the media, I mean, all these ideas, like all the, see, this is what I'm talking about. These people are not all-knowing by any stretch of the imagination. In a lot of cases, they're not even smart. And a lot of these ideas that they subscribe to were just basically pipe dreams, you know, pipe dreams that were sort of dreamt up in city of London smoking rooms a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, in a lot of ways, these ideas are insane. Yeah. You know, a lot of these programs that they're working very hard to inflict on the rest of us are insane. They're insane ideas, but they, they cannot let go of this fantasy, you know, this utopian fantasy, which is, to me, it's, it's almost like a drug. And it's certainly a religion. It's certainly a cult, but they cannot let go of it. They're going to have to let go of it the hard way. Um, and a lot of us, you know, are going to suffer during. Well, this don't you think there's also like a crash and burn policy here? Like, if it's going to go down, then it's going to go down for everybody. If it's going to go down for us, it's going to go down for everybody. Yeah, I think that the you know, I'm like always like an all of the above kind of guy, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't believe in these kind of like, oh, there's this one plan that everybody subscribes to, you know, even if they seem like they're not subscribed to, and even if they're act, act, actively working against this plan, they're secretly on the side because that's all part of this big, you know, show that they're putting on for us. And that to me is like, that's very Hollywood thinking. And to me, it's almost like Saturday morning cartoon thinking, you know, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of different interests and they have a lot of different ballywicks that they're trying to protect and a lot of things are going on at the same time. And I think that's part of our problem. I mean, that's part of the problem. The world has just gotten too complex. There, there are too many things going on and there are too many redundant systems. There are too many systems that were put into place for some short-term payoff that were just grandfathered in to the, the larger system. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, absolutely. So it's like, so Schwab and the, and I mean, I understand the impetus be behind the Great Reset. I understand like the thinking behind it. Like it's just like, okay, we we always had like this accumulation, this accretion of all these things that rose up in the in the greater economy over the past, you know, in the post-war period over the past seventy years that just have outlived their usefulness or never really 
useful to begin with and, or become sort of parasitic or whatever. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons to, to, to reset, or I use the term reboot, like to re- reboot right. a lot of these systems. They, they're in need of it because they are no longer functional. Um, they are no longer helpful. And it's just basically people's salaries, you know, like the salaries of mediocrity, medi, mediocre functionaries rely on the, the sustaining, I'm sorry, like after two hours, I think my mouth stops working, uh, <laughs> you know, that um, a reliance on, you know, the train running. Right. The train staying on the So tracks. they'll do everything they can to keep it moving forward because they don't want to sacrifice their um their salary their their two-week vacation in the maldives or whatever right yes exactly so so if if, but if we had people who weren't insane like klaus schwab and yuval noah harari and just all the rest of these people who are i i would say objectively it's insane like they say insane things they They say they they say things that are just like that you would imagine you know even just 20 years ago a lunatic saying yeah so they say things that are insane. So it's just like the wrong people are in charge of this process. But maybe that's also an inevitable part of late stage empire. I don't know. I don't know. But um, to me, it's like that's like sort of like the setting. But it's like my interests, you know, a more personal and on a more personal level like how, how do you survive within this this system how do you survive right. within this process right 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 so you're a cancer astrologically right mm-hmm. you just had a birthday that's so right. that's a very personal sign right that's a very personal sign you know uh, cancers are concerned with you know p- personal issues growing security right the family right it's localized it's organic so that's kind of an outgrowth of your astrological designation in some ways. I mean, that's not the totality of who you are, obviously, but it plays a role in there. This leads into my question, and I'm gonna, we're going to let you go here so you can get back to your, uh, your, your world. So you're a Cancer, which means that your son is likely conjunct Sirius. Is that the secret son that you're talking about? Is Sirius the secret son? No. Okay. A lot of people assume that. Okay, that's why I asked you the question. All right, so um, all right, so my sun is in Cancer, my moon is in Cancer, and my ascendant is Sagittarius. Okay, my, you know my ascendant sign, and I don't know what any of that means. <laughs> I just know that it means something. You know where they are. Yeah. No. So the secret sun comes from dreams that I had starting when I was a little kid that the sun would be out in the middle of the night, but it was like a different sun. It didn't look like the sun does right now you know it was it looked different the lighting was different you know like shadows were different everything like that right so and it was usually between the time of one and three a.m that the secret sun would come out and all like there would be certain like people walking around who knew that the sun was the secret sun was up but a lot of people didn't and then um it sort of came to incorporate like marshes you know, that marshes were sort of important. And, you know, marshes are liminal spaces, you know, it's like between the earth and, and water, right? Right. But it also also came to incorporate this weird motif of like these, of like a suburban neighborhoods, like on the, the 
you know, sort of the rim somewhere like hidden somewhere on Manhattan, Manhattan Island that right. you, you'd be walking, you know, you know, the brownstones and the townhouses or whatever, you know, skyscrapers. And all of a sudden there would be this like very idyllic suburban neighborhood that the secret sun would shine on, let's just say. Hmm. So, I mean, I've kind of worked on this, you know, my entire life trying to figure out what exactly, and there were a lot of layers of meaning, but the secret sun is just basically the sun that comes out in the middle of the night, looks different. Not, most people don't know about it and has these connotations to these liminal spaces. So I, I guess you would say that it's, it's like a very liminal idea. You know, it's about boundaries sort of morphing you know, it's, it's about um, things changing, but only certain people understand that they are, right. let's just say. Right. I mean, I don't know, you know, any number of, I, people are always disappointed when I tell them that. No, no, I think it's, I think it's a cool story. Uh, and yeah. uh, if we had time, I could probably link that up to your chart, but we're not going to do that right now. So hopefully we'll get you on my, my Sunday night show and we could talk more um about your presentation because that sounds really interesting oh i'd love to do that yeah i think you'll be really fascinating the work so one of the things that you know the focus of the work in many ways and i see this as the focus of a lot of these traditions that i look at particularly esoteric traditions is the um you know the royal arch so where uh the galactic plane meets the ecliptic at you know gemini and you know just above orion and at galactic center okay so you know above that you have you know aquila and uh lyra and cygnus and then um you know we get into like the the, the perseus constellations but right. sort of at the top of that heap is uh cepheus the gardener but cepheus is sort of like in this conflict with draco around the pole star right right and the pole star to me in the, the biblical story is the pole star is actually the forbidden fruit. And I can sort of walk you through how like the pole star is the forbidden fruit because um, Adam and Eve are Perseus and Cassiopeia. Okay. And um, you know, God, the garden, Cepheus, the gardener, obviously. And um, you know, it's all about, you know, ascending to the, to heaven. But to me, the esoteric things like in this sort of underground Freemasonic constellation, no pun intended, but it's about restoring the watchers to the garden. So the watchers are beneath the ecliptic. They're in the underworld. They're in the abyss. You know what I mean? They're in Tartarus. Right. And that's all that that loop. You know what I mean? Where we have Puppis and, and you know, on the other side, we have Lupus and than lepus you know the, lupus and lepus it's, and it's the uppuses it's the, the yuses right yeah all the yuses <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah. so um yeah so uh the yuses versus the thems so you know so we understand that all this mythology was you know it was all above the um equator right it's all north right. these are all northern constellations that were oh, yeah, of yeah. utmost importance to these because people you know people writing these stories were all above the equator right right so um but you know they could see certain like you know 
Orion and everything. And Orion is, you know, the headless right. I mean, again, I can go on forever here and go on all sorts of tangents, but um, it's once you understand that, that that is the, the goal is to restore the watcher angels to the garden and through the gates, through the gates of Boaz and Jack and AKA right. Catherine Pollux. Right? right. Yeah. And that the, the, the vehicle that takes you up is the chariot, the charioteer, the Pentagon, Auriga, right. which is, you know, it's both the charioteer and, you know, the goats, the kids. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a whole right, the, thing. The, that, goat, the, the goat tail from, uh, where was he? Was he in Georgia or someplace like that when he, when he told the goat, t- goat tail? What school? No, it was Florida. Was Florida, 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 yeah, yeah. Florida. My pet goat. Yeah. You know, might, so yeah. there you go. So, <laughs> so there you go. You know, I've got Yeah, that's crazy. That yeah. takes us back to the Chicago Cubs and the, well, and the, so the, the goat my story. Pet, and the, my pet goat, the I, I believe, is Capella. Right. Noriga. And mm-hmm. I believe that Capella is uh, associated with Solomon. So that would be Solomon's temple because Origa is very clearly associated with King David. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at depictions of King David and also Christ, the good shepherd. So Origa is not only the charioteer, but he's also the good shepherd, right? With the kids, you know, you can see him holding um, the stirrup or the whip and then the kids. And then you see that same imagery with King David where he's holding the staff and the the lambs and the same right. thing with Christ. So it's it's all the same symbolism, you know, and it yeah. all sort of it's it's all about like rising to the top, you know, rising to the North Pole to the pole of, star, of, right. of heaven, you know, and, and the right. pole star. But you know, Draco is there, sort of circling around, guarding it, always trying to undo your your best efforts and so on. Right. So uh oh, it's great stuff. It's really very simple when when you just understand that that basic theme. Right so much so many of the things that people have kind of puzzled over for thousands literally it all opens it all opens up it's like oh that's what it is yeah i mean i think there's a very heavy ritual aspect to this right and i'm not like i'm not like one of these astrotheologists it's just like oh it's just that you know they just saw these little dots in the sky and they told these little stories about it right i think there are you know much more profound meanings behind it and, and also profound rituals behind it but right we can get into that another time. Let's do it. Let's say, let's have you back on a Sunday night. And before we go today, let's tell people about where they can find your extraordinary work. Uh, you have your blog and I have it up here somewhere. Where did we go? Uh, why don't we start here? Let's go to, let's go to Amazon. Is, is, is there another place you can send people for your books or is Amazon a good place? Um, yeah, there was good a place as any, unfortunately, <laughs> there's a monopoly, there's a, you know, Let's throw this up here. And um, Endless American Night, um, Our Gods Were Spandex, The Secret History of Rock and Roll. Is that the trinity for now? Are you working on something else? Uh, Don't forget He Will Live Up in the Sky. You Live Up in the Sky. He Will Live Up in the Sky. There we go. So there's a quadrinity. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a novel. Um, Okay. So you could get uh, all three there for 66, 8, 18. That's a great deal. Yeah. Right. Interesting numerology there too, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Are you trying uh, to tell me something? <laughs> yeah, we got our we got our eyes on you. The watchers are watching you. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's get your blog up here, which is uh, the Secret Sun, right there. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the latest that you did with Greg over the Higher Side Chats, mm-hmm. uh, Secret History of Rock and Roll. So if you want to find out more about Chris Christopher uh, and his work. You can 
coming over here going all the way back to 2007. Look at that. Mm. Yeah. Do some d- deep mining there. I love this. <laughs> Doc. <laughs> yeah. That basically says it all right there. Hey, thank uh, you for coming. Thank yeah. you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I, I really did enjoy it. I really did yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, good um, stuff. I really want to, yeah, I'd really love to talk about the other, the star stuff. Yeah, let's get you on my Sunday night show. We'll, we'll, we'll like just open a portal and you can just, you know, be the, be the water bearer and pour the contents right into that show. <laughs> that'd, that'd be awesome. So you uh, enjoy your weekend. Thank you. And um, great talking with you. We'll see you again sometime. Okay. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Christopher. Thank you. All right. Bye for now. That was Christopher Knowles with the, uh, or from the secret sun blog. Boy, what a great show. Am I right? And uh, looking forward to having him back on, on Sunday night. So I get to take care of an order to business now. Uh, if you're interested in attending the event in October with David Palmer, the Leo King, and we'll get into more astrology that weekend and a bunch of other stuff. Um, I have a link over here on robertphoenix.com that can uh, get you there. Well, get you there in terms of being able to sign up for it. Let me just go over here for a second. I get into the website, not in the admin. Give me one sec. So I can show you the page. You can get to it via my homepage. It's not, it's not occulted. It's not hidden. So here we go. As you can tell, I'm uh, not in my normal hill country locale, which is why it looks a little bit different today. Anyway, there you go. RobertPhoenix.com. Click on that right here, the details, and it'll take you right to everything you need to know about what we're going to be doing in October. Country Harvest Moon. There's David. We've got some cool things lined up for some extracurricular activities. Of course, David, being a electronic music wizard, is also going to supply us with some frequencies, tones, and beats that weekend as well. So you don't want to miss out on that. And then, of course, uh, my website, robertphoenix.com, if you're interested in getting an astrological reading uh you can do that there as well and uh that page is right here and i specialize in a lot of stuff including relocation um couples work believe it or not i'm really good with couples and by the way you get a reading watch this video it has instructions on what to do afterwards you can call me right you call me and that's how you set everything up And I know some of you sent me emails and I will get back to them. I promise you. I think that's about it. That's the order of the day. Thanks again to my Chris, my, my guest, Christopher Knowles from the secret sun. And um, you guys take care. Use your head in order to so much real your heart to set up when it's possible. I'm right. Strange attraction, mass psychology, synchronicities, and occulted realities.
Welcome to the Friday Farcast with Robert Phoenix.